Back again, another episode of Redhead Racing Radio. I'm Jason Schultz. Andrew Curlin's here. We've got another interview for you today. A crew chief. Who could that be, Andrew? Oh, man, Jason, you're putting me on the spot. I think if I had to take a guess, maybe crew chief for the number eight car and junior motorsports, Taylor Moyer, joining the show today. How'd you know? You know, just a guess. Lucky guess. You know, I figure... If anyone were to come on the show, it would be crew chief of the number eight JRM car in the NASCAR Xfinity Series, Taylor Moyer. He's got a couple of connections to Junior Motorsports, so we were able to get Taylor on the show. He's really awesome. Yep. I think we're going to talk about a lot of interesting things and hear a lot about the mind and life of a crew chief that I don't think anybody really realizes goes down. I know. I've got a ton of questions, and I'm excited to ask him, and uh, he seems like, from what you've told me, he seems like a cool guy, so I'm, I'm looking forward to picking his brain. And he's got a really awesome, crazy story, so I don't, I think you're going to learn a lot about how a crew chief becomes a crew chief today. So we'll get to him in a few minutes, but the Bristol Night Race just took place last night. I was overall disappointed that it didn't seem like the Bristol that we saw maybe in June with a lot of wrecks and action and drama and stuff like that. But it did surprise us with some eliminations. Yeah, you know, it, it was definitely not the hype race that we thought it would be. None but... of the first races in this round. Like, I was very disappointed by every single race in this round. It was like two short Darlington tracks. Darlington was and great. Play. Oh, we're, yeah, we did argue about that. You can go two episodes back to find our argument why Darlington, the last the lap, few laps of Darlington were great. But like, two, I was expecting more out of the two short tracks this round. Yeah, it was disappointing. You know, you look at Bristol and you're like, man, this should be it. You know, the big elimination race. I think di- uh, what also kind of killed it was when Byron wrecked. He was kind of the one guy now. keeping yeah. the bubble alive. We're keeping the bubble points close. And then once he was out and wrecked, it really didn't make for anything all too interesting because he was kind of that one guy who was right on the cusp of making it, not making it. When it became really clear that he wasn't going to make it, well, it, it kind of made everyone else's destinies pretty clear too, which was, you know, disappointing. You wish you wish you could see guys higher up, you know, have problems to really make the playoff bracket yeah. interesting. But um, I, I think obviously the big guy coming out of this round is Ryan Blaney. I know when we were talking about it, he was a round of eight guy for both of us, I'm pretty sure. And to be out at the beginning of the round of 16 is something obviously neither of us expected. No. And Austin Dillon made it. Like, no one yeah. in the world would have thought that because he did nothing except win that Texas race by being able to hold off everybody because no one could pass. And it was like that was the only memorable thing from his regular season, really, and to be able to hang on in the playoffs and have two really good runs. It, shocker. I was not surprised by De Benedetto. Can't say his name right. Did you have him out? Uh, I don't remember. I think I did, but I can't remember if I did or not. I think he was a pretty typical one. Same with Cole Custer. I don't think anyone really expected him to do much, and that turned out. But I don't know. I was expecting that first round to be easy eliminations, but got two wrong. Yeah. Uh, I just moved into the uh, the bathroom because my roommates were being kind of noisy in the other room. So hey. I'm going to be doing the rest in here. I, the acoustics might be a little echoey, but you can't hear them at least. Remember when I did a show <laughs> from my bathroom a few years ago? Dillner, yeah. I think if you read our reviews on Apple Podcasts, Matthew Dillner left a review specifically about that. <laughs> so now he can make fun of you for that too. That's right. So we're in here now but I think it's a little less noisy than it was over there. Um, 
Now, I, I, I think I had to Benedetto. I'm going to have to look back and see. But Austin Dillon, obviously, the, the biggest surprise. And he ended up being, like, what, plus 53? Like, almost a race ahead of the cut line, which is obviously something neither of us expected. Yeah. Although, I will say, he did not have the race that he had at Bristol than he had at Darlington and Richmond. It was not the Austin Dillon that we saw. Yeah, he, um, didn't, he was comfortable, so he didn't really need to perform as well. Well, those first two races, he had to get an edge, and he got that edge. So so I'm curious to see what he does in this next round. Can he carry that momentum? Yeah. Talladega, I'm very, like, the Roval will be awesome. Vegas, I'm not as excited for it. But Talladega, like, you could, any of those guys that may not, you know, may not expect to move on to the round of eight could win that race and move get a automatic bid. So that is going to be hopefully a very exciting race where we get a surprise guy maybe be able to lock a spot in the round of eight absolutely and you know it was something interesting kevin harvick said on the press race yeah the host race press conference was that the what the what the post race press conference say it five times in a row no i'm not (laughs) (laughs) but it was something interesting he said is like they do not look past the next race like Harvick would have to be reminded that Talladega and the Roval are in this round is basically what he alluded to because they are looking one race in ahead in advance. And you look at some of the other guys in the series who all they talk about, they don't they forget about Vegas. All they talk about is is Talladega and the Roval. And that's so interesting, kind of the different approach these drivers had. And you know, we're gonna go back to are people racing to advance and racing to win? And then are they racing to just not get eliminated? I think Harvick kind of falls in that category of racing to advance, racing to win. He's not, he doesn't even care. And obviously, you know, with the bonus points and everything, he doesn't really have to care much about Talladega and the Roval, but he really does not care about those races until they come up, which I found was interesting. That reminds me to remind everyone that the playoff points suck and they need to be abolished after the round of 16. And I tweeted that last night. Most people agreed. Some people were like, well, they worked the whole year. I'm like, well, in the NFL, you go the second round of the playoffs, do you get a 10-point advantage in the game because you won 16 games in regular season? No. Playoff points suck. Harvick's already got a huge cushion. He's already got like a whole race over, basically a whole race over the cutoff line already. Like, without he's going to advance easily. I just wish, like, the first years of this format, it was... Playoff points, No, one, there's no playoff points. Everyone's reset at zero for the second round, third round, fourth round, and that's what made it exciting because it's like, all right, you're in the playoffs, go perform. I miss that dearly, especially when I see the playoff points right now. Yeah, and especially the fact that Hamlin didn't necessarily have the round that we thought he would, and now he's back up in second yeah. place. You know, No problem. Yeah, I think you know we're going to go back to it. I think playoff points should carry over from the playoff points you get in the round, but that's it. So yeah. Harvick gets 10 points for the next round. Kozlowski gets five, and then I don't remember who won Whoever each individual stage, stage, but the stage winners get to carry those points over. Yeah. I think that's th- fair. Yeah, because that's only or a even, few points, and that, that's not going to be that big of a difference. Even, even if – what if you just cut your playoff points in half? Like you can carry your season playoff points over from the previous round, but it's half of what you had going into the round of 16. I think that's too complicated. I know. I Either agree, yes, yes or no. Um, so my thing we're going to do in the shows after this week, going into this next round, I think we'll give you the standings without the playoff points calculated just to see how they stack up because I'm very interested to see. 
Because I think it'd be way more interesting. The playoffs would be way more intense and dramatic without playoff points. Like, if Harvick and Kurt Busch, who's in last right now, are tied, like, go out and perform and see who wins. And that's what right. should determine it. Yeah, right. I agree. That's enough of playoff talk. On to Vegas, on to Talladega, on to Robo. But first, on to our interview with Taylor Moyer, crew chief, number eight car, Jumar Sports. Let's see what he's up to. All right, joining us now, crew chief of Junior Motorsports number eight car, Taylor Moyer, Leah Vaughn's boyfriend. I think she is as famous as you on the Dale Jr. download. Uh, welcome to Redhead Racing Radio. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, I think Leah is way more famous than I am, and we're both, yeah. we're, you know, we're both half as famous as our dog, but oh, yeah. <laughs> just happy to be part of the family. Yeah. Um, it's been awesome. Like, I literally... I started working at Jerem full-time this year. We've got to know each other, each other a little bit, seen around Leah's office and around the hallways, but never got to like talk to a crew chief before. So I always think it's so cool when I just get to like say something to you. I'm like, oh, that's a crew chief of the A-car. How cool is that? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad I give off that persona because honestly, when I first started my career on a big cup team, I can remember the first crew chief that really gave me the time of day and he's still a friend and mentor today. And you, you think we're big, scary people, but we put our pants on you know one leg at a time just like everybody else so yeah i'm glad talk to me whenever you come to my office bs whatever you need to do yeah yeah you were very scary when i first met you that's that's the impression who was that crew chief by the way that that would be steve letart ah very cool yeah so i worked in the chassis shop at hendrick and the chassis shop shares a bathroom with the gym steve would go down and work out and i'd be in the chassis shop working and i'd see this guy and he he's talkative i'm talkative and we hit it off and the rest is history. So, um, I'm kind of interested in that before we get into their questions. Like, what kind of stuff has he taught you, and what have you learned from him? You know, I don't know, crew chief, racing, so, just stuff in general. Yeah. Uh, well, he, like, right when I, so I started my career in, um, like, first major cup team was Hendrick Motorsports, and I started on the design and fabrication side. That's what my background's in. And then there was a point in my life where I did kind of getting bored sitting behind a desk just designing race car parts and wanted to get to the track and uh, when I made that transition Stevie that was the year that Stevie made his announcement that he was retiring so Dale was driving Stevie was there I was their test engineer so I I was so enamored in learning this new skill I didn't get to learn a ton about his crew chief style or anything other than I knew that the environment on his race team was very laid back it was a lot of fun to be with those guys and it it just seemed like a fit for me. And I was very disappointed. I was in the trailer that day um, at uh, the, the Daytona Speedweek test when it had been leaked and he had to tell us all and it was sad. So I didn't get a lot of firsthand like crew chiefing experience with Stevie. But since knowing Dale or, or now now having crew chiefing Dale and listening to some of the stuff he said uh, and listening to some of the podcast, Stevie's podcast or just interactions between them, I've definitely learned some lessons on, you know, how, Stevie handled Dale and Dale handled Stevie, which has certainly helped me when a couple races a year I get, or a couple races I get Dale. So yeah, I've learned more, more, um, people treatment, personality type things. So, but it's been nothing but good lessons. Stevie actually taught me a lot on the personal life side. Uh, you know, Stevie, uh, has always been 
pretty smart with his endeavors outside of racing and it was some interesting i had some interesting stuff going on i just just recently closed my personal business but i had one for five years and he actually encouraged me to start that he's like hey you can do it on the side why not you're fine i've got these side gigs do it have something for yourself to get your mind off racing and he gave me that kick in the butt to start and it was a great lesson in life so that's what i owe to him very cool so we'll step backwards a little bit i want to hear how you came from vermont to unc charlotte then eventually started working at hendrick at a really young age can you kind of walk us through that uh, path how you got there yeah i have a i have a funny path i guess um so i grew up on a big farm very proud of that all my family both sides are uh, family farms and in fact this is one of my family farms on right. my mom's side repping them yep um go get your pick your own produce at battle view orchards for your <laughs> um but uh i guess all i'd ever done my whole life was farm and then my best friend uh back up a little bit when i when i was very young before i was born my dad was actually a crew chief in a local series up there it's now ACT It's late models. It was Bush North back then. And he, they were pretty successful, but he got out of it. So I guess that was in me somewhere. And then growing up on the farm, I had snowmobiles and four wheelers and dirt bikes and was always very mechanical. And my best friend started driving, uh, well, I guess a go-kart, but I didn't really get with him until we started racing like, um, uh, mini sprints or, or, you know, micro outlaw cards, 600 CC sprint cars. And uh, I just kind of got really involved in helping him fabricating, you know, being at the dirt track every week. You felt like a hero. My mom would write me a note to get out of high school a couple hours early. His dad would roll through the front circle with the race trailer, which was just a gooseneck and a, and a you know, a Chevy 2500. And we'd go to the racetrack. My friend was very good. He still is very good. Um, he races a modified now up in Vermont. And that's where I got my start. But simultaneous to that, in my high school, we had engineering classes from the time I was in ninth grade. I guess it was drafting for ninth and tenth, and then uh, what a uh, like a program called pre-engineering and architecture for junior and senior year. So two and a half hours a day for my whole junior and senior year, I did engineering and architecture type class where we got a bunch of your math and science credit. It was better than just sitting in geometry and sitting in earth science or whatever. So I knew I had a knack for CAD. And I knew that I could take what I drew up in CAD and then I could go down the hall to my other best friend that worked in the machine shop and have it cut out and we could put it on the race car and, whoa, this is cool. That's my piece. We didn't buy it. It raced, it didn't break. We won a race with it. Um, and we were all kind of just little, we didn't know any better, but it was cool. Like if we had an idea, I could draw it up. We could put it on our snowmobiles. It'd be cooler than the next kid on the snowmobile trail or whatever. So <clears throat> I, um, I knew I wanted to go into some sort of racing and I, I looked at the, I don't, I don't know what drew me to NASCAR cause I never worked on the NASCAR or never worked on an asphalt car in my life. Um, the world outlaw schedule looked pretty grueling. I wasn't sure how to get my foot in the door and an edu uh, post secondary education was important to me. So, um, I got into some, I got into Clemson, UNC, Charlotte, Virginia tech and Georgia tech. And I'm actually the first person in my family not to go to Virginia tech, both sides. Yeah. So, but when I looked at it, I was like, man, it seems like when we, my dad and I drove down and we toured some race shops and everybody's like, you got to know somebody, you got to know somebody. I was like, well, if I go to Virginia tech and I'm a Hokie, I'm probably going to end up working at a farm or flipping burgers or washing cars to pay my way through college. And then I'll have to four years later, try to make my connections. If I go to Charlotte, maybe I can just get on a race team as a fabricator, which are skills I have now work my day job as a fabricator, go to school and get do it all at once so that's the choice i made and um 
I literally the third day of college went to the motorsport shop and the the they have a legends team there and the fabrication I don't mind saying was atrocious and I was like hey I'll rebuild these cars for you this is embarrassing so I rebuilt two cars over like a week and there was a kid there that was working on um there used to be a big series called Hooters Pro Cup which kind of K&N took the place of which is now ARCA but there was a nationally syndicated series the races were on speed channel who just broke up and a kid came to me he's like hey we're looking for somebody of your fabrication skills that's halfway athletic to also do pit stops and i was a, i played three sports in high school i was still in good shape back then heck yeah so uh every night i get done class i drive up to uh, china grove and this guy took me in with open arms even though i didn't know much about um asphalt racing named mike herman and uh we we worked on the car. We practiced pit stops. We all rode in the tractor trailer truck together to the races. I mean, pro cup was still like, I think it was a million to win. If you were the track champ or the season champion, I did that for one or two years and then, um, needed to make some more money. And there was a team in Morrisville that this is odd, but they got a contract from the Prince, one of the princes in Dubai, the UAE to build 48 48 road course stock cars it's called and be called the speed car series and it was kind of like a um a rich person's go-karting league so there was four x formula one drivers johnny herbert yana lacy i don't remember the other two and you would race against those guys and if you had a couple million you could buy a car for the year and you got one blank white race car with a bunch of spare parts and you race all these formula one tracks throughout the world so i joined on to fabricate uh, all those cars we finished that out we also had an arca team that was kind of the renter ideal we had a lot of people that would come to us to run like daytona or whatever to get approved to run nascar trucks or arca or i'm sorry nascar trucks or xfinity was bush bush back then but did that and then that started to fizzle out and through a weird chance encounter at my grandparents 50th wedding anniversary i met a gentleman who knew somebody that worked at hendrick and uh, they hooked me up with him. I went out to lunch, did a little mini interview before he even turned my resume in. And the only thing open as far as they could see getting me getting my foot in the door was there was an open pit crew tryout. And I went and I made a developmental pit crew uh, program. So I still wasn't employed then. I was just contract labor. But if Hendricks right near UNC Charlotte, I would just go back and forth all day. Eventually, I was like, I, I was waiting tables and pitting on the weekends. And I was like, I need a little more steady income. And Hendrick had an opening for the parts kid. Like I was the kid who took parts from central parts at Hendrick and delivered paper towels and SD 20 and people's uniforms to all the shops. But I figured if I did that, I could meet a lot of people and I could prove to them how hard I work. You know, if I was professional, blah, 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 blah. And it paid off. Uh, Maybe a year later, there was an engineering internship open in the chassis shop of Hendrick. And at the time, they were building chassis for everybody. And uh, Rex Stump called me in. He's like, holy cow, you have fabrication experience too. You'll fit right in with these guys. And uh, looking back, that was probably the best thing that could have happened to me. The chassis shop was made up of like a great group of really old school racers. I mean, dudes that worked on teams before there was computers involved and engineers and luckily, I was just maybe rough enough around the edges that I fit in with those guys. So I could talk to talk and I could use a welder and I could walk to walk, but I could also do the engineering stuff. And uh, looking back, though, some of the best times of my life. I was young. Um, they hired me full time when I graduated college. 
I got to do that. And then they moved the body and chassis shopper combined when the new, it was called the CO, the car after the COT, I got to be on the development team for that with Chevrolet. And that went on for a while and I was a parts designer and I was just getting a little bit burned out. I was like, man, I don't hear, I don't smell race cars. I don't hear race cars run. I'm not at the track sitting at my desk. Like I could just, I could design toys and do the same thing. And uh, yeah, I went up to, it was, it was Stevie and Chad were the crew chiefs in the 4888 shop. They'd had a guy vacate and there was a, a data acquisition engineer, which was a big position back when there was open testing. So I was like, um, instrument all the cars, taking a test, make sure all the instrument instrumentation works, be very involved from the crew chief level through the mechanics all the way to the shop level. And I did that for about three months. And, uh, Chad actually walked in and, and told my boss at the time, Rex again, that, Hey, I'm going to hire this kid to be like a junior race engineer, but he's still got to do all the data. So I did that and, uh, it worked out. I, I got to go to a couple races that year as a race engineer. First race ever I got to go to as a race engineer was Jimmy Johnson at Dover. And I was like, Oh, we finished second. We didn't win. I was like, man, if I could win my first one ever, but then the next year there was an opening on the five team. Keith Rodden had just come with Casey and I was on the five team for three years. And then in there towards the end, they switched to Darian as a crew chief. And then we were given William Byron uh, the last year, his rookie year. And then at the end of his rookie year, they made another change and they went Chad crew chiefing. And I kind of got shuffled out <laughs> and I got a call from, uh, well, Mr. Hendrick and junior motorsports said, Hey, we think you're halfway decent enough. Let's, let's try this crew chief thing. When I, you know, I had told some people that was my goal. I actually thought I would fit in better as a crew chief than I would as an engineer. I'm not, I'm not naturally book smart and I don't love being my, behind my computer and I'm more of a whole car guy and people person. So, um, it's been a challenge for sure. It's not easy, but it is a different set of challenges that I think fit more in my wheelhouse than just being the race engineer. Like I was on the cup side. So really enjoyed it so far. You mentioned kind of briefly right there at the end about, how you actually thought you'd fit better as a crew chief than an engineer. And I know a lot of crew chiefs now come from engineering backgrounds, but like, what is like the difference between like a crew chief role and an engineer, like in the responsibilities between the two? Yeah, I could have never imagined the difference when I was a race engineer race. And I'll be the first to say race engineers do most of the, like they do a lot of the work they do the very technical grind out the numbers run through simulations in the computer do a lot of organization get build sheets to the mechanics weeks in ahead you know they're getting build sheets out uh, which is the sheet that tells the mechanics how to assemble the cars you know three weeks out so the shop mechanics can be assembling and then you might make adjustments and you got to be on track with the crew chief right and then you might learn something those couple weeks in between and then you got to relay those changes to either the shop mechanics or if the car's turned over to your own mechanics when they get back um so I was like, always like, what do the crew chiefs do? And then you get to be a crew chief and you're like, oh yeah, uh, some days I would love to be behind my computer and not have to be in meetings and answering questions and doing sponsorship obligations. And um, crew chief has a lot more personal roles. I mean, you have to worry about, you. a good crew chief, I believe, worries about team dynamic and uh, momentum and points and you know sometimes i have to call a race just to beat another car sometimes i have to call a race to go to the win sometimes i have to know when i don't have a car to win the race but i got to maximize points and that might look as you know there's just you have to be i feel very blessed in the 
I was, I never walked into a race engineering role and I had to go through all the steps to get there. So I know what goes on behind the scenes. Um, so something I learned from my dad, uh, was, and it's something I feel I'm very proud of and I'm not tooting my own horn, but other than probably paint the race car and drive it, there's nothing on that race car. I don't have the physical ability to do. I'm not a master of any of the trades, but I don't ever feel shy asking somebody to do something on the car because I know I can just pitch in and help them. Even like fab shop. And it's, it's sad. I try to sneak back there and weld once in a while or, or, you know, put some rivets and something just cause I, I physically enjoy creating, you know, but um, I think that goes a long way when you ask somebody to do something. If you ask somebody to do something and then walk back in your office, they probably have a bad attitude. But if you ask somebody to do something and then you'll get them the tools to do it and then be their spare set of hands, they have an appreciation for you. So I hope that goes a long way. Um, I'm glad I had to come up through the ranks like that. Um, I've, cause I've certainly seen the stigma that race engineers get or engineers in the sport get as a whole when the sport switched to a very engineering driven um, sport, you know, people thought they were getting pushed out of jobs, you know, there's whatever. So if you can, if you can talk the talk and walk the walk and, and, and you bring something of value to other people, then you're, you're much more accepted. Um, the differences I think at all different teams are different though. Um, even the race engineering role at different teams, I know for sure is a different, ta- different role. Um, some teams have a race engineer, which is very much worried about, race strategy which is kind of what one of the my last year at Hendrick I was involved in and some and then there's sometimes there's a sim engineer which is very worried about just the simulation of the race car and getting the uh, adjustments you make in the computer or whatever put to the track and correlating the two um, but those all go mix and match a lot of times I think um, the best teams are they match the personalities to the skill set and run with it from there so yeah and you mentioned earlier too that like working with Chad Canales and the 48 car and, and learning from Steve Latar and obviously they have two different styles of, of how they lead a team. Did you kind of pull certain things and certain skill sets from each one of them and, and applied it to you? And then like, what are some things that you kind of independently found within yourself and, and just doing the job? Yeah, sure. Um, I actually think one of my biggest so the two crew chiefs I worked underneath as a race engineer very intimately were Keith Rodden and uh, Darian Grubb. And uh, so Keith Rodden, Darian Grubb, Chad Knauss, and Stevie, you know, are, are four guys that I know their styles, you know, pretty well. Um, but certainly worked the most intimately with Keith and Darian. And yeah, um, looking back, there's things I certainly borrow or stole whatever you know <laughs> what is it mockery is the best form of flattery or whatever. yeah but, yeah <laughs> but from some of those guys and there's also things that i learned that hey maybe if i want to be a crew chief that's not how i want to run things for for better or worse i don't think any any of them ever had ill intent you realize you never know what's going on behind the scenes and people are put in positions sometimes when they where they lead a certain way or maybe the team dynamic is such that they lead a certain way but i knew that it would be the most natural to me to try to lead my team personnel wise, like Stevie Latar and Darian Grubb, who are, who are both good friends of mine still. And we have, I, when I, my last year on the 24 with Darian, I had probably the most fun in racing I had ever had. It was like being out there. It was all, it was a young crew. Our average age was like 30. That whole team is still some of my, my best friends. We are all on different teams now and we still get together and hang out. We hunt, we, (laughs) <laughs> bs we we're at millbridge with a sprint car like it was like being it was like being paid to be on vacation 
with your best buddies all the time. Um, we fought like brothers, but we also, you know, it was good. Um, so that was the team that I wanted. I wanted to try to build that environment at junior motorsports. And um, it's uh, the way that racing works now with contracts, even on mechanic side and stuff, you can't just go cherry pick people you want or anything like that. Um, it takes a couple of years. And I think I was very blessed to walk into a really good team. Kevin Mendering left um, when he left to go back to Hendrick, he left me with a really good group of guys. Um, some of my guys from last year moved on to bigger and better things and I'm proud of them for doing it. And then the team I have this year is just the same way. It's there's so much fun to be around. We have a mix of um, we're a pretty young team. We have, we have one older guy and he's uh, you know, Greg and he's great. He's like team dad and he's got permission to smack me in line when, you know, when we, when we're be acting too young or not doing things right. And then we have, you know, a young guy, Jack, Jack, who was fresh out of college last year and uh, he now has a really good engineering mentor, Andrew. Uh, we got Danny Earnhardt Jr. I mean, the famous Danny Earnhardt Jr. is the, is the car chief. Uh, we got Dave Sumner, who was a cup car chief uh, and longtime cup guy. Tire changer is now our front end guy. And it's just it's just a blast to be around these guys. In fact, we're going to drive up to Bristol uh, in a big Suburban like we did to Darlington the other weekend. And I uh, can't wait because it's, it's just fun. So I know I didn't answer your question that well. Um, yeah, some of the like organizational things I certainly picked up from Chad, uh, the way he represented the race car to the sponsors, you know, shirts tucked in, be on time, stuff like that is in my personality wheelhouse as well. So I carry that stuff on. Um, Keith Rodden is an extremely smart guy, very, very, very book smart guy. And, he, you know, he taught me whether I liked it or not. He taught me so much along the way. And those are certainly things that keep in the back of my hat or you know in my in my back pocket when i need to so i learned a little bit good and bad the whole way and i've just tried to do the best job i can with the knowledge i've gained so you talked a little bit about that brotherhood with guys on the road teams on the road i asked you this earlier today just see if you have any fun stories of just kind of being on the road with these bunch of guys that you said you were so close with that you work so closely with during the race weekends and um I've just seen, I've kind of noticed that teams are really close on the road. Like you go race them during the day, then maybe go hang out at night. So I was wondering if there's any good stories you could share with us. <laughs> yeah. So the 2018 year with all those guys, we're all very, we're all the same age, same athletic ability, which is really cool about that team is we pretty much had the whole U S map covered Tutal was from Arizona. Billy was from Florida. I'm from Vermont. Ox is from North Carolina. Ty is from Indiana, but he lived in Japan. Darian's from Virginia. So we had like wow. this, yeah, it was it was cool if you would have put it on a map. And on the cup schedule, you're gone so much. So we fly out Thursday, get in Thursday at a decent time, practice our tails off Friday. Saturday, usually come in and qualify, but you get out of the track at like noon or one, and then you don't come back until Sunday. So a lot of times, Saturday afternoons, we would have, uh, we'd have the afternoon to do something. And we were a pretty good group of guys about like, we wouldn't just sit in the hotel or go to the bar. We would go do stuff. So in Daytona, we would surf uh california we carried our mountain bikes everywhere uh, and our shotguns we would shoot ski we would surf we would mountain bike on the west coast swing we'd stay out we'd always run a cabin in big bear california and we'd snowboard uh, oh sorry moose our shot guy was from uh it was from michigan i'm sorry not michigan montana that's why we called him moose um so we always had fun stuff going on so probably one of the i don't know it's embarrassing to me but best stories is i grew up i could ski when i could walk switch to snowboarding at 14 we go to big bear it's a small mountain i'm like oh i got this me and my little brother just been <laughs> in utah for a week snowboarding uh like yeah. a month prior rented a cabin first day it's slushy and i'm just getting antsy 
and I'm getting overconfident. <laughs> we're, we're, we're riding the lift up to the other side of the hill. It's like fourth run of the day and we're going over the terrain park and I'm watching people go off like one of the big kickers, like the big, I don't know, 50 foot kicker or whatever. And they're all coming up short and all coming up short. And I'm like, I'm going to show these guys. I get <laughs> no. This is nothing for me. I've just been in Utah where you land in like four feet of powder. Yeah. And, uh, I was like, yeah, guys, watch this. And I bomb down the hill. Don't check my speed, hit the kicker, hit my mute grab, realize like look down the spot, my landing and realize I have overshot the entire jump by <sighs> 20, 30 feet. And I'm going to flat land. And at that point I, uh, kind of did like the goofy in the air, like rolling the windows down. <laughs> and I came down and I just remember in the air thinking I'm going to break my tailbone. So I pulled Ooh. my butt up and I landed flat on my back and I knocked the wind out of my, I mean, not even to the point where you can make that guttural sound, just the can't do anything. And they skied up and I'm trying to act tough. I'm like, yeah, got it. We're fine. <laughs> got to the bottom of the hill and there's picnic tables and I took my jacket off and I laid down, laid out on the picnic table. I was like, just let me get my breath back. And I stood up. I just felt all the blood rush out of my face and oh. passed out. Oh. And uh, they carried me down to the infirmary or whatever. And that would have been, I was 29 and I've skied since I was four. And I've never, ever, ever had to go to like an infirmary or have ski patrol come. And they made me drink a ton of water and, and pee to make sure there wasn't internal injuries. And they're like, you might have some broken ribs. We don't really know. So a two day trip, I ended it in about two hours. I had to stay in the cabin the rest of the time. The team manager, Brian Weissel drove up to the cabin, brought me a bunch of Advil and, uh, got through the California race. And then I, the six hour flight home was just grueling oh. on the airplanes. Couldn't sit. Yikes. And then uh, Hendrick had a team chiropractor. I had to go in every two weeks and then he'd have to. So what I ended up doing was um, separating the ribs out of my sternum and jamming them into my spine. Oh. Yeah. And since your yeah, sternum, yeah. sternum's all cartilage, there's not many blood vessels. It doesn't heal. So he'd break them back around every two oh. weeks. Finally got better. But yeah, that wasn't, wow. that wasn't good. That's but, insane. Yeah, we don't. We always had fun. We always yeah. had fun. Even even on the weekends where we weren't, there wasn't time to do stuff, we got to where we were saving money by not going out to dinner. We'd all go grab like fast food and then go to somebody's room, grab a, you know, some drinks, and we'd play cards all night. We played. We would play. We played Phase Ten. I don't know if you ever heard of Phase Ten. We'd played Phase Ten the whole year, at least once a weekend. It was a way for us to just BS, have a great time, laugh, cut up, and not go out and spend a bunch of money and get in trouble. So, yeah. You, so like you mentioned you overshot it you had like 20 30 feet of extra real estate to go through like how much time did you have to like think in the air about like you like you could just see the ground you're like oh great this gonna is crash. like <laughs> yeah. yeah way way too much enough that enough <laughs> enough that i consciously pulled my butt up so i didn't hit my tailbone <laughs> but yeah i've snowboarded since uh, a couple times okay. but that was a that was a big one. That was probably my my worst wreck. And it, it's it was late. It was uh, you know late spring skiing in California. It was all groomed trails. There's nothing. There's ice and groomers. There's nothing. There's no big powder to land in. So, and and that's good too that you went snowboarding after. Like normally that could like drive people away and like they don't want to do it after no. that. But uh, I, I want to jump to you. Kind of mentioned how like there's a bond formed between you guys and the team. And and one thing that's interesting with the eight car this year is the only different revolving piece at least visually is different drivers that you have to work with so is it difficult having to work with different personalities throughout the year uh yeah it certainly is more so than i thought it was going to be um 
and I think that's more so because the drivers that the eight car gets because of the business model of sport are all different, all in different stages of their career. So like last year I had nine drivers on that car. I had some up and comers, Zane Smith, Sheldon Creed. Um, I had guys that have nothing to prove Dale. And then I had guys that are up and comers too, that can put enough money together for um, like a quality car for 10 races like Jeb. Right. So then, and then this year I got Daniel, who's a phenomenal race car driver, best dude in the world. You know, obviously whatever happened on the cup shuffle, there's only so many rides he got in our car. And then I've got Jeb again and I had Dale for one. So they're all in different stages of their career. They all want different and they all want to win, but they all want to prove different things. Um, they all have different sponsor obligations. Um, you know, maybe they pick, maybe their sponsors force them into picking a track that's good for their sponsors sales territory but it might not be the best track for their skill set you know so you're always battling that and then you battle what those guys have driven in the past um you know a lot of like daniel for instance came from rcr and jeb's been in rcr stuff he's been in jgl stuff he's been in nice trucks he's been so they some people have this feeling that's very familiar to them and maybe our stuff drives different so then there's a learning curve all right what does this guy want to feel to feel comfortable um, the other thing that was really funny last year, I had Ryan Priest some last year too, um, was like the octaves of their voice, uh, and their, their, how, how the octaves of their voice and their personality when they, when they give me feedback on the racetrack, um, learning, learning how, how much panic in their voice equates to wow. what amount of adjustment. I had Zane Smith, who was the most laid back talented kid I've ever met and <sighs> He'd be like, yeah, I was wrecking loose. I'd be like, you just said it just like that. I was wrecking loose. Like, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't freaked out. Like, I was like, man, maybe I should have done some more adjustment. Yeah, you probably should, but it's no big deal. And you have another guy that's like, this thing's wrecking loose. And you do a half a turn. He's like, now it's plowing tight. And I'm like, well, you're screaming at me. Like, I thought you needed a big – no, it was almost fine. Like, oh. it's just – everybody's a little different. Um, and it takes a little time to learn that. And uh, especially with no practice this year, that every race is another learning another chance to learn there's not um you don't have those practice laps to to learn those things about people so it's been a challenge for sure but there's also good sides of it if you have a bad weekend and then you switch drivers they usually come back refreshed and it's you don't have like the bad momentum rolling through <laughs> i mean we've had some absolute crap luck this year i've i've never seen a year filled with uh, there's five races that if they would have just greened out in the last three laps we'd have five more seconds um <laughs> and then we've i most of those races, I don't think we finish better than six. Like we get beat around or get wrecked of no doing of our own or something happens. So it, um, that goes a lot. That goes a long way with like team camaraderie. I've been super proud of my team this year. And those guys, they all have their chin up. We've had some terrible runs or good runs and terrible finishes. And they come back to the shop with their head up and then go back to work the next week. So there hasn't been any doom or gloom yet. <laughs> Congrats, though, on second place on Saturday yeah. this weekend. That was good. I was yeah. like, I told Andrew, we should probably wait until there's a good race to ask Taylor to come on. And I was like, this is our opportunity. It was a really good run. JRM swept the weekend, and you finished second on Saturday. So that was good. Yeah, it was. I was, uh, it was, hap- I was happy for the whole organization. It's, I had a good friend text me that watches all the races. He's like, man, you guys haven't dominated like that in a while. And I was like, well, with the COVID schedule, you know, junior motorsports dominates at short tracks and speedways. Like, you better, you better look out when we get there. Um, other teams, other teams have a better shot at intermediate. So I'm like the co- the last time we ran a short track was Bristol, 
and I think that was the <laughs> second COVID race, maybe. Like, we just haven't been to short tracks. We, uh, we had all the Iowas were canceled. You know, they pushed a lot of our bread and butter out of the way. So uh, there's a lot of short tracks left in this season. I'm excited for them. All right, a couple more qu- or one more question for you to uh, end it here. A little fun one. So Leah told me that you happened to attend Chase Elliott's 21st birthday party. And <laughs> yeah. I can only imagine there's good stories that come out of a 21st birthday party, especially someone of Chase's caliber and how fun he seems in talking about that camaraderie of guys on the road too. So I want to know if there's any good stories from that. Uh, maybe none I can tell. Um, <laughs> give us a little, if a little bit. Well, let's put it this way. Uh, yeah, Chase turned 21. He was at the Hendrick organization. Mr. Hendrick let us take a plane to Nashville. And we had a private party at a distillery or brewery of some sort. And then we went out on the town. And um, Jeff Gordon was kind of the leader of all this. And <laughs> Casey Kane was there. <laughs> I do remember this. I remember that our hotel was right downtown. So at any point when you were too tired, you could just go back. And I remember Casey... Um, I remember like leaving to go to the hotel and it was pouring down rain and you're kind of running through the streets just to stay out of the rain and uh, finding Casey in the streets, just completely lost. Like couldn't figure (laughs) out his way back to the hotel, rescuing him. Um, But no, it was a good time uh, for sure. It was a long plane ride back, even though it's only like an hour, but obviously somebody's 21st birthday, there's usually some adult libations involved and we partook heavily in that. So all right, I like it. I like it. I think 21st birthdays always are really fun. And so Jeff Gordon, the ringleader. I don't think I would have expected yeah, yeah. that. Yeah, he's the ringleader. Jeff, Jeff will get down outside of uh, NASCAR. I like it. <laughs> I think I think he was the babysitter slash, you know, he's supposed to look after us, but I think he had just as much fun as we all did. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much, Taylor, for yeah. coming on the show. I learned, like, I don't know, we haven't talked, like, I learned so much technical-wise, so much about Kruti's role, so much about your background, and I just, like, have 30 more questions asked. Seriously, now, me too. Go ahead. Just go ahead. I got nothing no. but time. <laughs> we'll bring you on another episode, and we'll yeah. have another round, too. But it's just, like, I don't know, so fascinating to hear about something that typically isn't covered on the broadcast, typically isn't covered in the media. It's just kind of really interesting stories and perspectives from someone that's deep inside the sport that knows a lot about what's going on. So thank you so much for coming on again. Really appreciated it. Absolutely, guys. I appreciate you. Anytime you need anything, just call and ask or walk down to my office. Sweet. <laughs> I'll fly. I'll fly down. I'll fly down. All right. Fly down. <laughs> if you ever need a pit spare pit crew member at Phoenix, Andrew will be there and ready to go. Yep. Um, well, shoot me up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, we had to do the whole pit crew thing at uh, Road America. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, true. We didn't get to do it because we blew up, but I was stoked. I was going to change tires. I haven't done that in a while. So. <laughs> Is there any more this year that we're going to do that? Or is that Iowa where they're also going to do it? No, it was going to be Iowa. It's going to be the, yeah. what they call non-competes when the cup guys are a different track, but yeah, mm-hmm. gotcha. One and done for this year. Right, maybe next year we could see you back in action on the pit crew. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Man, that was, that was awesome. Like literally, I think one of the best conversations we've had on this show. Uh, I literally had like probably 10 more questions. I wish I could have asked him, but like we went, we went long on that and, and like we got to have him back. Yeah, for sure. So many interesting things. I don't know. I loved hearing about like the camaraderie. camaraderie I don't know how to say that. Camaraderie. You got it. Come, come. Wait. I think you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Camaraderie. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that word. Of like the crews <laughs> on the road and how tight they are and how close they are. And that just is a really cool element I don't think is ever covered by the media. It's just something 
cool. So I liked him hearing him tell those stories. And it was pretty funny getting some details about Chase Elliott's 21st birthday party. I know, I know. I, I was still surprised, you know, Jeff Gordon kind of like being that, that guy. I mean, now now that I'm kind of starting to think about it a little bit more, I could see it. But um, I, I thought it was even interesting just him talking about his role. And, and, you know, he mentioned how tight the teams were and then having to rotate through drivers. And it was really interesting when he was talking about momentum. Like one driver, if you have a bad race, it literally doesn't matter when another driver comes in and steps in the next weekend because that bad momentum that that one driver had is gone. And then this new driver comes back refreshed and ready to go. And then that cycle keeps going on. I found that was really interesting. And um, Was it really interesting? You said that like five times. Did I say it was really interesting? Really interesting. Well, it was. And it was really cool to hear him talk about his connection with Steve LaTarte and Shaq and Nouse. Like, yeah. Those are big yeah. names and really influential guys. So really cool to hear about that. And I don't know. We definitely will have him back on to dig into some more stuff. I think we were even asked more about technical stuff that we were interested in. We even get to that. So I think we're going to have to have some more talk about that. Yeah. No, I agree. Uh, he's definitely a guy we have to have come back. And he even said, like, Going and watching the race broadcast after the fact um, and watching that and then comparing it to what's actually going through his mind is a little different certain times. And just to get his perspective, almost like if we went over race film with him and he took us like, this is what we're actually doing here. This is what I did here. I think that'd be really interesting and something that's never really been covered before. I think I had an idea like that. Maybe I shared it with you. I don't know. It was last year about... Like, the NFL has play breakdown. Like, they go over the game film and stuff, like, on yep. with coaches and players and stuff. Like, NASCAR should do that, too. Like, Race Hub Monday should be a current driver and current crew chief breaking down, breaking it down. film from the race. Like, that is interesting. And NASCAR needs more content that's interesting and compelling like that. Well, that's just, it's all an excuse to have him back. That is true. All right. Thanks for checking out our interview today. You can go follow Taylor on Twitter if you're interested. He his um. If you want to go follow Taylor on Instagram, you can go, go follow yourself. No, <laughs> comma. I was thinking yesterday. I was saying Clint Boyer because he kept messing up, and he was like, Jason, you're saying Clint Boyer. It sounds like I was like, all right, comma Clint Boyer because I was mad. <laughs> all right, I found his Twitter. I know I found it too. I got it. Okay. I can I can do this on You got it. If you want to follow Taylor on Twitter, it's at Taylor C. Moyer. And yeah, follow us on Twitter too. I'm at Hey Jason Schultz. At Andrew Curlin TV. Good job. And we'll catch you, you on the next episode of Redhead Racing Radio. Let's do it. See you next time.